From the founders of Mod Racing and the Northwest Rally Association, this is the Motorsports and Driver Development Show. My name is Katie Lopkovich, and together with Keto Bromeyer, who is my partner in life and business, we have built the fastest growing rally program in the U.S. Through our work, we get to meet incredible people, and this show is all about bringing those people to you. Our hope is to inspire you to go after your dreams and show you possibilities you didn't know existed and hopefully help you build some skills to get where you want to go. Today, we are talking to Dave Carr of Patian, who is the founder of Rally Ready, a driving school just outside of Austin, Texas. Dave stumbled on Rally as a teenager and has literally lived the Rally life ever since. He talks to us about the journey of figuring out his specific passions and special blend that makes Rally Ready driving instruction unique. We get to hear some great stories and learn a bit about what's next for Rally Ready and where he thinks the sport is going. And the icing on the cake is when we get to talk about Rally Rescue, the dog rescue that he runs out of his ranch, and how we are hopefully going to partner with him on some Texas to Pacific Northwest dog adoptions. This is such a great episode because Dave seems to be able to put words around some of the magic that exists within Rally, and it's just really special. I know you all are going to love it. Thank you for tuning into the show today. You can follow along with our race series on Instagram or Facebook at Mod Racing, or you can find us online at modracing.com. All right, enough for me. Let's hear from Dave. Welcome to the Motorsports and Driver Development Show. My name is Katie. And I'm Keto. And today we are joined with Dave Karapetian, the owner of Rally Ready. Wow, that was incredible. That was like 9.9 out of 10. That was incredible. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Thank I you. mean, you, you, you only lost 0.1 because you didn't quite stick the landing because the conviction like trailed off, but that was incredible. Yeah, that was great. Well, as a as a Lobkovich and a Brillmeyer, Brillmeyer, we do our best. Yeah, you guys know the struggle. <laughs> um, thank you for joining us today. We are super excited to have you on the show. You Sorry, are the owner of Rally Ready, which do you describe it as a rally school? What do you call it? Man, you know, it was yeah. We so I started Rally Ready in 2006. It was our rally team um, and our Pikes Peak hill climb team. Uh, and then I opened a store in 2007, sold safety equipment, like a brick and mortar store for three-ish years, quickly realized that I, in absolutely no single category, do I have the personality to, uh, run a, an online store is like just pure misery. Um, and yeah, so we sort of then transitioned it into our rally school. And fortunately the name has been adaptable enough that it's carried us through all that, but yeah, it's been rally ready driving school ish for the past eight years. And where are you and how long have you been there? So we're, we're just outside of Austin, Texas, uh, in a little town. Technically, we're between two little towns called Litton Springs and Dale, but we like to say, we like to say we're in Dale, so we can do it for Dale, Texas. Uh, and we're, we're about 15 minutes from Circuit of the Americas on 140 acres that uh, we've been here at this location for five years next month. Awesome. Are you from Texas originally? Born and raised, yeah. I'm about... I'm about 39 and a half minutes from the house I was born in. That's so cool. Yeah, you roll into that Texas accent really well, but you roll out of it too, so I wasn't quite sure. Yeah, yeah, we can trans the smooth transition. Yeah. Well, I love just, it. We'll just, that, which is perfect. We can talk rolling in and out of all kinds of driver inputs as well. It's perfect. It's a seamless transition. <laughs> <laughs> so rewind all the way back. How did you even get into rally in the first place? Oh, uh, we. Exactly. I, so I, I, I grew up in Austin uh, and 
I was probably 13, I think, when I started playing in a, a punk rock and hardcore bands here in town. That's not where you thought that was going. Nope. And, uh, and yeah, so we would play like, man, at the, at the peak, we were playing like five shows a week while we were in high school. And so we'd like finish school, go to somebody's house, load up all our gear, put it in usually my mom's minivan, go downtown, set up, play a show, come home reeking of cigarettes and uh, go to sleep, wake up fail all of our classes the next day and rinse repeat and um uh and so we, we we did that for about two years went on tour in the summer of 2002 it would have been um went and played some like festivals on the east coast came back that band ended up breaking up because it turns out that if you exclusively leave 13 and 14 year olds to manage a band um it doesn't it doesn't work so uh, i started playing in some other bands with some guys who were into like street racing and drag racing hondas um, come to find out mostly they were just stealing them. Uh, but I, <laughs> that's how I got into cars was playing Gran Turismo three on the couch of a six and a half foot tall car thieves house. I was like, dude, this is awesome. You can like drive type R's in this game. Oh, this rally thing is sweet. And so I was utterly unbeatable in, in the rally portion of Gran Turismo three. And one of my buddies was like, just sucks. Just go get a real rally car. And I was like, that's a pretty legit idea. So I effectively bamboozled my parents who didn't have any college money for me into procuring some small portion of what would be required to go to college and instead spending that on a rally car. So I, I basically bought a, a rally car with my college money for my 17th birthday. And my dad was like, this is it. I'm finally going to teach this kid a lesson. He's going to have to go out and get a job and he's going to have to understand the value of, of hard work and money. And instead I found a shop in Austin that was, like super excited about rallying, but just didn't have a rally car. And they had a type R that they were like autocrossing at the time. And um, I was like, dude, I have a type R rally car. And they're like, awesome, let's do this. And so they basically just paid for my first two events. And I got this extremely unreasonably, completely unrealistic expectation of what the rest of my motorsport career was going to be like. And, uh, and then of course, after, after two events, they balanced the, 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 their checkbook and were like, yeah, that's not, it's not sustainable. Uh, so essentially I, I picked it up from there and have been filling in the blanks ever since. So what you're saying is you can't expect to just buy a rally car at 17 and have someone pay for all your racing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you definitely can expect that so long as that someone is your parents or your, your <laughs> grandpa or somebody else in your family who has access to ludicrous amounts of money that they're willing to eviscerate in like it egregious sums of it at an alarming rate. So let's, let's talk about this, this first rally car that you had. Um, did you buy it as a like complete log booked car or did you yeah. build it? Oh, so, okay, no. so you built it. So it was Ivor Wiggum's old car. And if you've been in rallying long enough, you know, Ivor from uh, at the time, Ivor Wiggum's European rally school, now the firm in Florida. So um, I, I had two friends, we all packed up in, uh, my, my buddy Reed graduated from high school a year early. I dropped out and bought a rally car. And uh, uh, our third friend, Roy, came with. And me, Reed, Roy, and my dad hopped into Reed's dad's, who was like a fourth grade teacher or something like that. He had the 16-passenger van. We are like, all right, we got it all figured out. We drove from Texas to New York, dropped off Reed to start college uh, in New York. Saw my sister there, and then we road trip to Florida. This makes perfect sense. Couldn't have just rented a van and gone straight to Florida. No, no. Uh, drove straight to Florida, 
went to the rally school down there, picked up my new rally car, uh, and then road trip back to Texas um, with my new car. And uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was quite an insane roundabout when, adventure. When you say road trip back, did, does that mean trailer the car? We back? did trailer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, we, we, yeah. It was, I, I, like, you know, Ivor wasn't really particularly clear, as is most motorsport transactions. There's just sort of some vague listing with, like, three photos and, like, plus spares, you know? And you're like, okay. So we show up with a, this 16-passenger van and a U-Haul trailer, and he's just, like, hiling things in the back. And he's just, and he opens another door. He's like, yeah, I think all those wheels actually go with it as well. Let's see how that, that lot goes in. We're like, no, that's not, we can't fit people back there anymore. So it was either me or Roy took turns, like <coughs> pallets of wheels and spare parts in the middle of this van. And then one of us in the very back row, just sitting back, you know, whatever he was doing. I was probably snake two. I don't know what people did back then. On the right. <laughs> probably snake two. Yeah. That's like so great. You started actually rallying, but you have done more. You even mentioned yourself. You did. You had a Pikes Peak team. I would love to hear a little bit about your progression through your racing career. Yeah, it it uh, our first event ever was Rally to Paris, which is here in Texas. Um, was on an old National Guard base. So Thanksgiving weekend, they'd send all the troops home. We got all the tank training roads. So we did that uh, Thanksgiving weekend, two thousand four, and then. Uh, <laughs> I was on the second to last stage. Nobody really clearly explained, and by nobody clearly explained, I didn't necessarily listen as thoroughly as I thought I did. And it wasn't like I was a bad listener. I was like, I read the rule book cover to cover three times before I like even bought a rally car. I was like memorized everything. I was stoked. But I did my my novice class, and we just didn't really understand the difference between route book and stage notes. So. Uh, I went off on the seventh out of eight stages because my co-driver was like, this is on my first rally ever. He's like, yeah, it's straight for two miles. What he meant to say was, I have no instructions for two miles. And I was like, this doesn't look straight. But my co-driver said, and real rally drivers listen to their co-driver. So I was like, just stay in at fifth gear. Ran a little bit wide uh, and parked it on top of some saplings. Sweep came through and they were like, it's fine. Just, just, so they tugged me out and were like, just go. So we finished that rally uh, and won because we were the only car in production class. So we got the invite to 100 Acre Wood, which at the time was the Club Rally National Championship, and uh, checked the entry list, and we're like, all right, all right, we got some stiff competition of ourselves in this class. So we finished that, and we're like, well, we're two events in, and we're national champions now. We have a production Club Rally National Championship, so pretty much just going to be WRC in like three weeks. We just need to figure out what class in the WRC nobody else shows up to, and we can dominate. <laughs> so... Our third rally ever was um, was Pikes Peak in 2005. So that was when uh, Pikes Peak ran with Rally America as a as a stage rally, which I ended up competing for the next 11 years at Pikes Peak. But that was really special. One because the first time you go to a place like Pikes Peak, I get goosebumps still like thinking about it. Is it is like well, one if you aren't comfortable with heights, it's actually nauseating. Um, but two, it is like, it's one of the most incredible and magical places you can ever go, regardless of whether it's affiliated with vehicles or not. And, um, but what was really special is they were supposed to have all these stages. Uh, the organizers had planned a whole rally and all these like different roads and it was mostly private property. And then it was going to finish with the hill climb. Well, they lost the access to those roads just before the event. So they scrambled. They're like, what do we do? And so the hill climb was like, well, uh, the highway closes at five. We could figure out how you guys could just use the whole highway after 5 p.m. So 
the hill climb runs from like six miles to the top of the, hill, the mountain. So there's like six miles below that that don't get used for anything as far as the hill climb goes. So we actually got to race from the toll booth all the way up to the start line and then from the start line to the summit. And one of my all time favorite motorsport memories was the first stage we did at Pikes Peak on that bottom section. There's, there was three people in our class and one of the other guys was this guy, Dennis Slutton, who I've, I've remained friends with over the years, but he was in a bone stock, I want to say 1990 uh, Jeep Cherokee. <laughs> and he had like BFG all terrains on it. And so he and his sons raced off-road and they were like, man, we saw like Pikes Peak was the thing we could do. We saw this rally class and we were like, dude, our, our, our thing's legal. Like, let's do it. Let's go. And he's like, man, everybody keeps asking, like, what kind of shocks you put on there? We're like, those are 29 99s. So like, what are those? He's like, I don't know, dude, but they were 29 So they seem to work just fine. We finished the first stage, and he, was, he gets out, and he's like, that was the craziest thing I've ever done. Man, it was awesome, especially like a mile in when I remembered that I could cross the yellow line. We're like, I'm sorry, what? He's like, yeah, dude, I did like a mile trying to stay in my lane. I was worried about oncoming traffic. We're like, yeah, no, that's, that's not how this works. And uh, so – we were so, I was in a, we, that car dynoed 140 horsepower at the wheels in Denver, right? So at like 5,000-ish feet. The start line's at 9,400 feet. So the, wow. um, yeah, no, it was, it was, you couldn't keep it in third gear on the top section. Like you'd shift out a second. You're like, wah, hit third. Wah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the perfect car for a 17 year old who didn't know what they were doing to be racing in at, uh you know one of the world's most dangerous events so i was so addicted i loved it so much we uh i i was there for 11 consecutive summers after that um and so we ended up winning we, we moved from that into uh into an evo person evo six and then an evo eight and um we won the open class there, the Pikes Peak open class, 2008, nine and 10. And it was sort of during that, that um, I sort of realized one, that I basically despised owning uh, an online parts store and I wasn't very good at it. And, um, and I was like, man, I think my real calling is like mentoring and, and teaching. And I had, I had actually just started mentoring with um, Big Brothers Big Sisters. And my little brother, uh, Tyrese, he, he'd actually never been out of Austin when we met in 2009. And we brought him to Pikes Peak. And it was, I mean, it's his first time seeing snow. It was his first time seeing mountains. It was his first time being out of Austin at all. And that, I think, for me and the entire team was, like, hugely impactful um, and really resonated and sort of solidified this idea that I had had of, of sort of teaching. But it was in my early 20s, and frankly, I was like, nobody will take me seriously. Uh, and so he's like, oh, I mean, you won Pikes Peak. I'm like, I won my class one year, and then we won again. They're like, all right. You know, and I was like, that's not, like, you know, not even my mom, I don't think, cares anymore at this point. And, uh, you know, the first time you're like, man, Red Bull and Monster are going to be, like, lined up and, like, you're going to sign the contract. And, um, here, in fact, the first year, 2005, that we ran, uh, <laughs> I was in the rookie meeting, and there was this guy next to us in this, like, snow camo, gray suit with sunglasses on is just like standing there like in the you know in the rookie driver's meeting like yeah done yet and he walked out and i was like who's that guy and somebody's like oh it's like some friend of travis pastranos or so i was like oh, okay cool and then we're like oh that was, that was ken block we didn't didn't know who it was at the time at all um but 
uh, yeah, so like I said, we, we did that for 11 years and, and sort of that, those three years that we won the open class is what sort of laid the framework for me um, for doing this. And, and, and mostly, like I said, it was just a product. I think anybody in motorsport knows that the hardest piece is to like find your niche and figure out where, um, where you can sort of apply your, I mean, every, I think everybody on planet earth has some unique combination of skills and, and assets that makes them, you know, who they are. Um, yeah. And so for me, that kind of started to, to align the pieces and we've been making it up as we go along ever since. I appreciate your honesty. I think we're all making it up <laughs> as we go along. So why not own it? Um, I think the other thing that you said about everybody having their own sort of, however you put it, but your, your own special blend is really important, especially in motorsports, because it's not always like your success is not always based on crossing the finish line first. There's so much yeah. more to the, the puzzle. And I think that there's so much more to more success to be had than just winning. So I love that you said that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you started Rally Ready, the school, mm -hmm. let's hear about that. I, you, you talk about it so easily. You're like, oh, yeah, I had a store and then I had a school. It was great. But I'm sure there was a lot that went into it. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny. I, I actually just had that conversation with my staff the other day. of Because, it, I mean, sometimes it feels that. It's easy to look back on your life through the you know, peaks and valleys and the easy stuff and the hard stuff. And, and sort of gloss over the excruciating pain and the like really difficult stuff that, you know, you've left in a room with your therapist and, and the really exciting, super awesome, fun stuff that, you know, similar emotions and just be like, yeah, no, you know, now we do this. And, um, and I was actually talking to my mom about that as well. She's kind of considering some transitions as I think a lot of people are right now. And it's like so easy to just sort of devalue all the hard work. And so, yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. I, um, yeah, it, it was, I think the hardest part of all of it is like, I, I started sort of alluding to earlier is, is like the ego and finding the right blend of, of like, which is the hardest thing in motorsport across the board. Cause I mean, the entire premise of it is who's the, you know, who's the coolest dude on the mountain or, you know, at the track or whatever. Like it's, it's a, at face value, pretty ego driven sport. Um, anybody who's spent time in rallying knows how totally different that is or can be with the right community. Um, but yeah, I think for me, like this need to need to retain humility, which I think often gets confused with like self-deprecation or, or humility to a fault at times, um, was really hard. It was really hard to, to feel like in my you know, early mid twenties, okay, I can do this thing and I can be taken seriously and I can offer really, I can offer value. And I also can can manage to not step on any toes because the scariest thing in a community as small as rallying is like, it's like Tim O'Neill gonna get mad at me? You know, am I gonna am I gonna ostracize myself from these other people who are also doing this? Like that I'm frankly indirectly competing with. Um, and it, I think ultimately it comes down to this uh, sort of scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset. And that's a place that we focus a lot on here. Is like I had to get to a place where I believed that. I'm not taking anything away from anyone. I'm not taking food off of anybody else's table. And in fact, we're, we're, you know, an industry like this is, is really, I believe, supported by having more opportunities and more options. Um, you know, what the guys at Dirtfish do benefits us because it creates more awareness for the sport. What, you know, Tim does benefits us, what we do benefit. And we all, I mean, we literally have an email thread between all of us right now. Um, even to the point that, you know, Chris, Chris Duplessis is not the answer to your question. It's a long tangent, but that's all right. Chris came down here last year with some of his clients from Monticello and 
one of the things I told him is I was like, dude, you know, he was like, I got a couple of guys that want to go to rally school in the winter. I was like, no, you have a lot of members that want to do that. And so we sent an email out to, or he did to, you know, their team, they brought a bunch of members down, including Ari, the owner and me and Chris and Ari sat here and like, you know, brainstormed a bunch. I gave him, a, I mean, everything I know. And it was really helpful for, cause Chris, obviously it's, you know, he's a Duplessis. We all know what they do best. That's hanging sideways into their neighbor's yards. Um, and, uh, so, you know, fast forward, obviously now there's Monticello Rally School at, uh, at Monticello Motor Club of New York. And, and that, you know, a, a decent part of that was because they came down here and like, I couldn't obviously be more stoked because I believe that there's, there's just a ton of space for, for everyone to work together. Um, and Chris is very lovable, so you just can't get mad at him. I've tried, um, you know, but for us, it was like, I'd been to O'Neill in 2007 and then it was 2010 that we were starting to work on this. And it was, it was for us, like, don't pull the old O'Neill curriculum out of the book. I didn't really remember specifically what we'd done there. I knew that there was some stuff that, that they did that I really liked. And I worked with Wyatt when I was there. And obviously, I adore Wyatt. And he's incredibly talented. Um, and I, I really remember the way that Wyatt made me feel in the car, like really safe and really comfortable. Um, and then, of course, there's some things that, that I, you know, would do differently. And, and so we just sat down and said, okay, here's where we want to get to. And here's where we are with, you know, a new driver. Um, and I really focused more on like the psychology of how do people absorb information? You know, are people auditory, visual, or kinesthetic learners? Um, you know, what's their primary sensory dominance? Uh, you know, how do you talk to when you have a classroom full of people, how do you talk to people when you have an only child and a middle child and you know, the, the youngest of 12 all in the same room, like those are, those people all absorb information dramatically differently. Um, so we just kept it really simple and there's no, there's no like super magic formula to what we do except for the level of intensity that, that all of our instructors go through and sort of, um, their training, which is just trial by fire. Um, but our, our curriculum was really simple. So we wrote it, it was me and, and Rob Amato, who's the co-founder of the school and also my co-driver. We wrote all this curriculum out and it was, I always tell people it was like writing a cookbook with no kitchen, right? We had no track, we had no cars. And, you know, we, we honestly, we only did, we're doing like, we did actually my last stage rally was Snowdrift 2010 in a car. And so this was like, we were writing this right around that time, essentially, as I'm like retiring from rallying in my early twenties, it feels like, um, and he, uh, yeah, he and I like wrote all this stuff and then it was like, cool, now we got to get some cars. And we started buying, you know, old late nineties Honda Civics off of Craigslist and painting them all matching Ford Grabber blue. Cause we were like, I don't know, blue's cool, whatever. They'll look fine. Put some stickers on them, put some race seats in them. And we ended up renting what was the overflow parking lot for a circle track. And so, um, yeah, we, it was like, they charged us this egregious amount of money. It was like a thousand dollars a day to rent this like one acre gravel parking lot, basically with like two inch, like giant chunks of like it's caliche rock. So it's basically just like mashed limestone. So it's incredibly abrasive, super sharp just eviscerated tires we went through like seven engine mounts in two days at one point we just kept going to AutoZone. we're like yeah this is lifetime warranty right we're gonna need another one they're like who the fuck are you guys what are you doing <laughs> yeah but the cool thing for us was i brought in people who i i'd known for a long time who loved racing but had no idea what they were doing um people who didn't care about racing people who didn't know how to drive a clutch people who fancied themselves rally drivers ran everybody through that same curriculum and coming out the other end at the end of two days, we ran basically a little, you know, rally cross course. And it's like, everybody was within two, two seconds of each other of on like a one minute course. Huh. We we're like, Whoa. And 
um, Brianne Corn uh, at the time was was helping me out as well. And I, she came in and like, she and I have had you know had this especially at that time had this sort of like back and forth like frenemy rivalry thing sort of going. It was like we were really close. Um, and so she just hopped in the car and, and went out on track and like tried to do a lap and drove right off the side of the track. And she was like, okay, I guess you have to teach me. And, and I spent a couple hours with her and she was like, whoa, and like totally blown away. And she was a total believer from that point. And um, so fast forward a few months and this, by this time it was May of 2012. And so we, same place, had our cars out. We had some students finally. And we were, she and I were sitting there watching some folks at the end of a, of a two day class. And she was like glowing and she was like, it took me 10 years to learn how to drive as well as these people learned how to drive in two days. And I was like, yep, that's exactly. So, and that like, I mean, I, same thing as earlier. Like I just, I get goosebumps remembering that magic of like having this big, huge, absurd, lofty goal. Like, yeah, we're just going to teach people strangers off the street how to drive rally cars. We kind of know how to do it. So surely we can just teach everybody else how to do it. And, and like watching that magic come together and, uh, we were hemorrhaging money. Like it was not, it turns out when you go through like 20 axles a weekend, seven engine mounts, 12 sets of tires, plus a thousand dollars a day to rent a parking lot. Like it's, it's weird, weird. It's not profitable. Um, but it was like a very simple proof of concept. And one of the guys came over, who's again, still a really good friend today. And he was fairly emotional and he was like, man, I've been watching rallying on TV since like group B. And as a kid, I would watch, those things like the cars like come into frame sideways and then fly through a corner in a giant cloud of dust. And I was like, that's the coolest thing in the world. And I never, it never occurred to me that I would in any way, not only, not only be able to understand what's happening in that car, but be able to do it. And in two days I've gone from having no idea what's happening in the car to not only understanding it, but being able like, sure, I'm not going to go out on a rally stage and win anything, but he's like, I can get in the car and do that. And in my way. Right. Um, and it was, he literally, and this is the piece that's always resonating with me. He was like, if I can do that, what else can I do? And he like looked at his hands and I was like, oh, that's what this is about. Like, this isn't about race cars. This isn't about like, you know, any, like going to being the fastest guy up a stupid mountain. Like this is about empowering people to mm -hmm. find that magic that's inside of them and create that in whatever way, you know, it manifests for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now at your alley school, what um what platforms do you teach? Do you just I mean, you said you started with Honda Civics, you had to do front wheel, rear wheel, all wheel. What all do you offer? Yeah, we're in everything now. So we have um a small fleet of front wheel drive cars now, uh mostly like EP3 Honda Civics, so like the the 2002 to 2005 um Civic hatchbacks. We have about 4,000, it feels like, of the GC body Subarus. Um, they just multiply. It's like it, they just put them outside and you're like, what? This one's a little bit rusty, but there's four now. Um, and most of those are, are naturally aspirated. Uh, we have some, some WRXs. I have uh, one and a half Evos right now, an Evo 8 and an Evo 9. Um, we have a handful of UTVs, uh, Yamaha YXZs, and some uh, Wildcat, I guess Articat now they are, Wildcat XXXs. A couple Polaris Razors, uh, BMW E46. We have a BRZ. Yeah, it's I just it's like you walk outside at any given time. You're like, oh, we have that now. Okay. Hmm. I do not want to lose sight of something you said. Keto, of course, jumped right into the cars, but yeah. <laughs> I think that you called out something that is just 
like embodies rally in a nutshell and I'm sure other motorsports, but there's something so special about rally where people see it. It's up here. They don't, they don't identify as something that they can achieve and then they get out and they try it. And then suddenly there's this understanding like of their own capabilities, but there's also this flow of like, I'm, I set this goal and then I achieved it. So then it's yeah. like, what's next? What's the next thing? I'm going to keep working. I'm okay. going to fail. And then I'm going to try. And then I'm going to fail. And I'm going to keep ticking these things off. And we see it time and time again with people yeah. who join our program, who it's life-changing. And they tell us like, totally. I was having a really hard time or I was really struggling with this, or I just, I was in a really bad spot. And now not only have I like taken up this hobby, I have a community of people, but also I feel like I can take on the world. And you just like, you capture that so perfectly. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, I, I tell our staff and I mean, like, we, especially when we interview people, I'm like, if you like really love cars and you're like a car person is a good chance that you, that, that alone probably isn't going to make you a good fit here. Cause like I said earlier, like who gives a shit about cars? Like I, cars are, I always say like cars are, are like a hammer, man. Like a, a you know, a, a carpenter and a craftsperson can really appreciate a really, really appreciates high quality tools. Nothing will make you appreciate high quality tools more than being really skilled in any craft. And to mm-hmm. me, rally cars, race cars, whatever your vice is, they're really a, a vessel to that. They also happen to be really fun because cars are this, as our, our buddy Aaron Kaufman very much taught me, like cars are this really magical part of the human experience um, in a way that I, I honestly just didn't really, I didn't get and didn't really resonate with me until I was stuck in a car with that guy for 35 hours driving back from Baja. And he gave me the, an important life lesson. But you know, for us, it's so much more than the cars. It's really just about people. It's about community. It's about sort of creating that magic. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head with rallying being really unique. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that, uh, what we always talk about in the classroom is most forms of racing are, are, are very scientific. There's always magic and there's always art in terms of, you know, what you do as a driver in the car. But, you know, when you're talking about like Audi at Le Mans or, you know, Formula One, you can take Tom Christensen in a you know a, a P2C Michelin tire at Sebring with an ambient temperature of 86 six degrees, and it's going to produce a lap time. Like the team knows you should produce a whatever you know 237.5, and if you come in and do a 239, like okay, well there's an issue with the car, there's an issue with the driver, and they'll analyze the data. It's just not how rallying works in the same way because it's as we always say, like most racing schools are are science class, and coming to rally school is art class. So. I can teach you how to mix paint. I can teach you how to stretch a canvas. I can teach you how to hold a brush. But ultimately, there's still going to be people in the class who make really good art and some who don't. And the people who make really good art, that was already inside of them. We're just helping them manifest it and put it into more manageable terms. And so, yeah, I think with rallying, like you said, it's, it really is the art form of, of motorsport. And I mean, it's no secret. You ask anybody from any discipline of racing and they always sort of go, yeah, no, it's the rally drivers that, you know, we look up to in that respect. Um, and it's cool. It was really fun. We were fortunate enough to have um, Daniel Ricardo out here three years ago uh, when he was in town doing some, t- funny enough, not actually during Formula One. He was going to a NASCAR race to go do a helmet swap with Dale Earnhardt. And then uh, one of our buddies was like, oh, we're going to be coming through. We got, we're going to be with Daniel. Can we swing by? I was like, I don't know who Daniel is, but sure. They showed up. We're like, "Oh, that's that Daniel." Okay, and he gotten uh, he he got he uh, turns out also important side note. Daniel Ricardo was terrified of dogs. Oh no! Like deathly afraid of dogs. Uh-huh. Wrong place to hang out. Yeah, how many dogs, dogs do you have at the ranch? 
one, two, three, four, five in here right now. Um, anywhere from like five to 20, it just depends on when, when you're here. But um, Rita heard we were talking about dogs. Uh, you said dogs, I'd like to join this conversation. Oh, that, that's me, I'm, uh, that's not my cue to come onto camera. Um, <laughs> but he, he got in, a, in an EP3 Honda Civic with me and, and he sat down and he goes, yeah, so like, uh, yeah, what do I do, man? I was like, well, it's, you probably have like a lot of the, like at least core principles. He goes, nah, mate, I don't think you understand. I've never like, you know, driven a car with a roof on it. So no, I haven't got a clue what to do. <laughs> and sure enough, he had no idea what to do first lap. And like, we're going, it's like a 30 second, like I didn't, we didn't go through any of our curriculum. We didn't, we literally did nothing. We just threw on helmets, got in, the, in a Civic with like a blown, you know, left rear strut. I was like, I don't know, this one has keys in it. So we'll take this out. And we're like burning laps. And it was so cool because, I mean, exactly what I just said, like you, he just was like, like any sports car, anybody who, who has instructed rallying knows that you get a guy who's good at sports car racing and especially formula cars, they are pure magic from about here to here. And then it gets kind of hairy here. And then this is like really bad. And then it turns into a yoga class and they're like, I just got to keep turning my body because I can't, like, no, you can, you can like pat, they're like, oh, I don't know, what do I do? And so he had definitely had that syndrome at first, but it's so incredible because as we know, like being a professional driver generally means professional check writer in many respects. So like you can work with a lot of pro drivers who are people who have access to more money, but working with somebody who has been like precision honed from birth to do what he does was incredible because it was, I went from instructing to learning in five laps and it was like, I, you know, I gave him feedback. I was like, hey, try a little bit less of this, a little bit more of that. And he's like, yeah, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, nah. And then I was like, you know, easier on the brakes, smoother on your transitions. Eyes up to that point, eyes up to here, eyes up to here. Looking here when you're here, looking here when you're here. He's like, oh, yeah, that nah, makes sense. And that was it. And like, he was just like, and then after five laps, I was like, I don't know what's happening anymore. It's a different level over here. It's just, so I just sat and watched. And it was like, it was so cool to watch that magic of like somebody who, who knows and understands the science of driving take in that like little bit of an art lesson and translate it into, into um, rallying. And so now when I watch, he, he posted a video, I think yesterday, driving a razor on his property. I was like, yeah, it's totally, I, I taught, taught him everything he knows. So it's fine. Totally, totally. <laughs> really humbling experience. Totally, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> speaking, speaking of razor, yeah. so you, um, are you the only rally school that does UTVs? Because I don't think Dervish or Team O'Neill no. does them. I think we are the only ones doing anything with UTVs and it's been a really difficult path for us because UTVs are, they're difficult. Like they're, they're a, uh, you know, high production machine. They produce them by the thousands and they have a lot of engineering considerations like packaging constraints. So on the one hand, you have a machine that checks all these boxes, dry sump, uh, you know, 15 to 20 inches of suspension travel or, you know, 24 inches, all this incredible stuff, you know, sequential gearbox, um, on the other hand, you have this narrow track, you have all the, you know, like the amount of work you have to do to get them to where I feel safe being in one on a rally stage. It's a lot of work. So, you know, as you know, Keto, we've been talking about it for years. We, we've spent um, a good three years instructing in them kind of on and off. Um, we moved away from doing, we had full on UTV rally schools for a while. We now just do that in, in private training. Um, but again, one of the big focuses for us is taking away this, I think there's this really like purest approach to, to rallying. I think to all, all motorsport, every sort of discipline has that. In rallying, you know, a lot of people I, I would say in rallying have this very like, well, that's, this is how rallying is and that's not rally. And um, 
I don't really operate that way. Like I, our rally, like our rally course, that's about, you know, 600 feet behind me. It's like big giant berms everywhere and all kinds of jumps. And like, you know, we're mostly here to have a good time. Um, so like if you've never driven a rally car on like a 12 foot tall berm, it's like near vertical. It's one of the most obscenely hilarious things you can possibly do. And I highly recommend it. So, um, yeah, UTVs have been sort of a cool vessel for us to take the car control stuff that we teach in a, in a rally car, add in some of my experience from off-road racing and, you know, teaching people how to go off big giant jumps, which is the most underrated activity. Like to be real, I think we're all at least 50% in rallying because we want to jump stuff. Yes. Be, yeah. Okay, cool. Right. Let's make sure <laughs> on the same page there. Um, and, you know, and like jumping rally cars is not practical from a like a business model standpoint it turns out that production unibody vehicles do not like to soar through the air effortlessly regularly so in order to get that experience for us utvs fill in that in that gap really well for us yeah. Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's kind of been a little niche we've we've done for a while and you know we enjoy it so now that they're starting to allow like utvs and um ara for stage stuff uh, you know you hear a few people kind of you know mumble about it and then also they seem to be running it as a like a separate timed race it's you know yeah. they don't even lump them in um you think that's like a good play for them or do you think that trying to welcome them in more to the you know into the fold is a better deal for them or what do you think you think utvs are going to be here to stay what, what, what do you think yeah i I mean, you, you know, because you and I have spoken about it on a number of times, but it was quite a while ago. I, I, my position on this is sort of continues to evolve. The, the one thing that's been really consistent for me since day one is safety. The, the number one and absolute cannot stress enough concern with UTVs is safety. And it's right. really as simple as you're looking at a rally car. You have a unibody that was engineered to, to, to work in a variety of different crash environments. Now we've added a ton of safety to that and we've added a secondary structure inside of that. Whereas a UTV is just that single structure. And even that single structure is often a little bit narrower and tighter than just the roll cage in a rally car. So it's really hard for me to, to feel really good about just saying, yeah, no, I think, you know, a Yamaha YXZ can just go take a start line right but you know, between Higgins and Pastrana and go fight for an overall and that's safe. I don't, that part's really hard. Um, I do think that that UTVs are certainly here to stay because ultimately what's the next, you know, Evo, what's the next STI? I mean, cars are only going to get bigger and heavier and more bloated and harder to turn into rally cars. I mean, the process now for buying a brand new road car and turning it into a rally car is like, you know, you got to have like a four Silicon Valley tech whizzes involved just to get things to work and to be able to communicate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, a, uh, Can-Am or, uh, you know, a Polaris may be a, a better option as far as something that can come off the shelf. And they're only going to get safer too. You know, I mean, if, it's, if you look at where we have a 2012, I think, um, Polaris out there and it's like, everybody's like, is that the kids one? I'm like, no, that was like, that's just the OG razor. No. <laughs> and then it's next to a brand new one that's has a reverse camera, you know, and like Bluetooth. It's totally. So I think we're going to see the, them physically grow and get larger. They're already paying really close attention to the alloys they're using and the chassis now in these in the side by sides. And so, the more we can do with safety, I think the more we're going to see UTVs. I, personally, I think that that same safety standpoint. I mean, one of the hardest things 
you guys know from being really intensely involved in the sport in a variety of different ways for a long time. I mean, much longer than me even. It's like the hardest thing we're going to have is what cars are we going to have available and what, what kind of, what kind of facilities, roads, and what kind of infrastructure we're for motorsport across the board. I mean, when you're talking though about off-road racing and rallying, the hardest thing is having a supply of vehicles and a supply of venues. Um, and so for us, that's part of it. I, you know, we did our rally school and we started on, like I said, a basically a one to two acre gravel parking lot. We didn't buy 140 acres because we needed this much land. We bought it because my belief is I want to be, I want you to be able to call me and be the kid that I was when I was 16 and be like, I just played a video game and had rally cars and this is my whole life now. And what do I do? And I want to be able to answer that question and offer you a path to, from talking on the phone to coming and taking a rally school, to being able to get into a vehicle that you can afford, whether it's an arrive and drive with us or build your own car in your garage or go buy a UTV um, and offer you rally sprints here, rally crosses here, and then send you out into the world for stage rally. Um, and I think, that, I think that UTVs will, will have a place in that for, for a while. Uh, if not, you know, again, they, there's always the possibility. It's as we now living in this very bizarre world, no, um, things change quickly. So who the hell knows? But uh, I, I think they're going to be around for a while. And I think they'll grow in the sport. And this, right. Sort of the sport and the vehicle will mesh together. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Keto, I'm giving him all the credit. This is not me. He has a huge <laughs> amount of foresight in terms of the industry and where, yeah. where it's going to go. And he, I think five years ago, started the work to make electric cars and side-by-side yeah. -side UTV, those types of vehicles, um, eligible to race in all kinds of rally. I know it's exactly what you're just saying. Like we have to expand what people are able to race, but sort of on that note, he spent a huge amount of time using his like fabrication and engineering background to develop out really great safety protocols so that you can build a cage and you can build a system for yeah. your So you're not having those concerns because I think yeah. my opinion is that we have to start crossing those bridges. Yeah. Well, we also worked, uh, worked with a guy who uh, was a battery compliance guy for SpaceX and yeah. talked to him a lot and I'm actually currently working on a project with him with um, um, one of the electric motorcycle companies where we're actually oh, cool. building an electric cross cart. So frame oh, nice. current, currently is in powder coat and then we're going to do reassembly. So it's, it's ready to, ready to go. So Very cool. you guys, are you guys looking at, electric I mean, you see wrc and g or uh world rally cross yeah. are going electric now is that something you guys are looking at yeah we um you know we have a really close relationship with uh the guys at sierra cars so not not cross cards sort of an, an uh evolution of that and, and sort of a spec race car that was the spec race car in arx uh, last year in the rx3 mm -hmm. class mm -hmm. um and uh yeah we you know we've been working with cole for a couple of years where we can and and you know it's like anything in motorsport a bunch of people sit on the phone going here's the problem how do we solve it uh and we've 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 talked to him extensively about helping put together electric stuff there uh, obviously with the amount of sun that we have here for most of the year there's a lot of opportunity for us to to create solar arrays to to do all of our battery charging um in fact we we're actually right now working on uh as part of a uh, larger project we have going that's sort of creating this this dude ranch here um for for lack of a better term we we're sort of looking at like the permaculture aspect of how we can continue to engage with our environment and work with our facility here to you know we have this massive property it was an old cattle ranch large portion of it was just wide open pasture 
we've cut in rally tracks there, so we've done no benefit to that. So now we're looking at ways that we can sort of build the permaculture in those little swaths of, of grass between the track, put in some solar installations, um, start to pull this facility off grid, and, uh, and same thing, start moving towards some electric vehicles when we can. For a lot of reasons, I think, you know, regardless of what political divide there's always going to be in, in the world, especially in motorsport and everywhere else, and some people roll their eyes at that, it's like, ultimately, we're, we're going to, regardless of how you feel about it and whether you like it or not, the, the fact is, electric cars are here to stay. A lot of people still want to believe, no, no, it's just a you know, watch. It'll, it'll be, you know, another few, it's like, it's, that's, that's where we are and that's what's happening. As soon as you drive one, you're like, oh, I don't care that they don't make cool noises. Never mind. This is insanity. You know, like they are insane. You, what power band do you want? What do you want? How do you want it to handle? Oh, okay. No problem. Like that. Okay. It does that now. Um, and I think from a driver training standpoint, having a, having a, a single vehicle that with programming alone, especially when you're talking about independent motors, you can mimic any different drivetrain, any, you know, so if somebody's racing a, uh, you know, Porsche cup car, great. You can simulate that with ballast and with a, you know, drivetrain profile, essentially a dynamics profile. If somebody's racing a rally cross car, whatever. Now you have a car that's totally malleable. It also means that you have one car that with the switch of a button can be usable for beginners, intermediate and advanced drivers. Um, so I, I'm a huge proponent. I'm, I mean, I am, couldn't be more excited to have uh, vehicles that make more power, are crazier to drive, and have a fraction of the number of moving parts. I bet. Um, tell us about the Dude Ranch. You just like throw <laughs> that out there casually. He's trying to sneak it in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just a little drop that in. It's fine. Did you guys notice though? This old thing. Like <laughs> the Dude Ranch. Uh, yeah. So. We, you know, we've used the, we, this is the rally ranch is what we, we call our property. We've sort of affectionately used that term for basically since we have been, since we've had rally ready and oh, there's a sleeping puppy on my lap who was woken up. Sorry, Rita. Um, uh, and yeah, so, you know, there's the motorsport country club model has obviously been around for, you know, 20, 25 years now and has been incredibly effective the membership numbers and the volume of cash that goes through those facilities is incredible. Um, and it's really cool that there's really, I mean, there's, there's it's just here in Texas, there's sort of different tracks and clubs for any sort of socioeconomic level. So, you know, if you've got, got a couple hundred bucks a month, you can join a track. If you've got, you know, a lot more than that, you can join at a different level. And so, you know, everything from store your F40 and your whole collection at a track and arrive and drive to, you know, tow your, or drive your daily driver in and go burn a few laps. Um, but going back to what we talked about earlier, I think something that has always been missing in those, at least in my experience, is the human aspect and the people aspect. There's these really incredible facilities that have brought this massive swath of like-minded people together who have at least one really, really critical commonality, which is this hobby or, or you know, industry that they really love. But the track kind of goes till five or six or three or whatever, and then everybody goes home and hangs out with their families. And I think it's such a lost opportunity to include those families and include all those people um, and to bring them together for stuff that's, again, outside of just playing with cars. Um, and our local track here in San Marcos, Harris Hill Raceway, is one of, the, one of the best examples of this. It's a little two-mile track, nothing fancy. They've got a bunch of garages. It's really affordable to be a member there. Um, and if you go on any given day, there's, you know, 20 people sitting on the porch at the track and only like 10 of them actually came to drive and the others are just there to see their buddies and hang out. And, um, so, you know, we've got this, this big, huge facility and 
this has been a real passion of mine for a long time, but sitting here during, you know, our pandemic, I was fortunate enough to be locked down here in the middle of spring, which was magical. Just sit on the porch making, I have a latte, a big espresso machine over there. So just make lattes in the morning and sit on the porch and like, you know, watch the hummingbirds. Um, and I was sitting there one day and I was like, what are we doing? Like we, we could be sharing this with, there's people who live in apartments in Austin who can't leave their houses right now. And we have all this space to be sharing. So we went back in the woods and started cutting in and clearing campsites and building this um, campground back there. And we just offered it for, for basically on a donation basis, anybody who, who wants or needs that space. Like if you need to get out of town, if you're, even if you're really high risk and you need to be somewhere where you're not going to be around any human beings, like just text me, I'll give you the directions. You know, I'll guide you back in a razor. I'll point you in the right direction and we'll leave you be for a couple of days. Um, and the first person who, who sent me a message, she said, I just finished a really intense year long battle with breast cancer and I got cleared to like leave the house and, you know, be a part of society again, three days before we went into lockdown. And I've basically been completely isolated for the past year and I'm going to lose my mind. And she's like, all the state parks are closed. The public parks are closed. Like, I don't know what to do. And she came out with her partner and they spent a couple of days in the woods and it was like, it was just that magic moment of like, again, like I said earlier, oh yeah, that's why we do this. So we're creating a membership program that is drive rally cars all day and, uh, you know, stay for driving movies and camping and, you know, horseback riding. We've got mountain bike trails in the woods. We have a big pond. Bucky Lassett comes out here and doesn't ever drive rally cars. He just goes fishing. It's exclusively. He's done probably 10 miles of drive. I'm, I don't think I'm even exaggerating. He's probably done in five years. He's probably done 10 miles of driving and about 17 hours of fishing. Um, on on premises so um, yeah and again you know it's one of his favorite places and it's one of our favorite people to have here because he just totally gets that community aspect and you know he'd rather crash on the couch here and stay up all night watching movies and you know hanging out with his buddies Um, so that's our goal I want to make sure that we were able to utilize that and sort of create this environment where folks can you know if you want to come in and play with race cars let's do race car stuff but the fun doesn't have to stop when the track shuts that's awesome. We yeah. get asked all the time to just have more events that are co- like community based. Like, yeah. can we have yeah. more where people camp over and stay for a couple days, even yeah. if we're not racing the whole time? Can we just hang out? Yeah. And it's like, for us, it's like, I'm not monetizing that part. Those are all value add for me. Like we have two tiers that we're looking at right now and it's give or take about 150 and 275 dollars a month is what we're going to be looking at for memberships 150 bucks a month gets you a full every saturday basically access to the facility so if you have a rally car and you live in texas you can come out or if you don't i have people who who i've been talking to some of our like you know long-term clients who are like i'm going to just store a car there and fly in once a month because it's still the cheapest opportunity for me to drive a rally car um you, you have a grass strip there I yeah, I mean if you have like a little STOL plane, yeah, I got a World War II airplane hangar and I've got like a seven hundred, yeah. It's like a kit fox, a little yeah. carbon cub dude. We'll get yeah. you dialed. Not a lot of runway then. <laughs> no, you'll be fine. You it's got like a thousand feet or something. Yeah, maybe a, maybe a little bit less, and there might be power lines at one end, but we're gonna we're getting there. So <laughs> just I'll let you know when we got a good headwind, you'll be fine. Yeah, a little crab landing. Huh? That's yeah, cool. yeah. Oh, hi, Rita. That's so cool. Rita, come well, say <laughs> Rita. Oh, this is oh. Rita. Hi, sweet girl. Your assistant's she's, pretty cute. <laughs> yeah, she's pretty helpful. So tell us about she's the dogs helpful. on the ranch. Yeah. Yeah. So we moved out here five years ago, and I grew up in Austin, like proper city kid. 
I didn't understand the stray dog problem in this country, specifically in this state, until we moved out here. And I mean, you, you, if you wanted, you could at any time, any day, you can drive out and you can go pick up a stray dog. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty much that, that uh, wild. And um, yeah, there is tens of millions of stray animals in this state. And it's like, we just was sort of like one of those don't have a choice. You see a dog on the side of the road, you're going to be like, oh, that's super sad. So we started taking them all in. I have five. Every one of them is a hobo street dog that we found somewhere out here near the ranch. Um, Mondo, who's sleeping next to me on this side, is a uh, 75-ish pound, I don't know, sort of maybe some kind of pit mix. Uh, we found him first. I was actually driving to the dog shelter to go adopt a dog, and we found him in the middle of the road. On the way there, I was like, well, that saves us the rest of the drive. Perfect. So, um, and then Rita here, who's in my lap, she has these, these, these little perky black ears. Yeah. And when we found her, she was in a ditch and her, her ears were just like solid ticks, both of them inside and out. Um, my vet still too. She's like, yeah, no. Every time she, she's, she sees Rita, she's like, hi, Rita. I think I'm still getting ticks out of my truck from when she, oh my God. God. Um, <laughs> it was just sort of like that all oh, every dog we found was like just in awful shape and at some point you have to cap your herd like that's it we're we're all full we have no more uh, hotel rooms available here so uh we just kept bringing the dogs though and it was like get them out as quickly as we can get them in and so we we're paying for vet fees sending them out the door so we started rally rescue sort of unofficially um last year and then uh september of last year we we started putting all the pieces together um, we had someone here, she was running it for a while, uh, and she she just left during the COVID stuff. So we're sort of kind of regrouping that right now. But um, yeah, that's a big piece of what we want to be able to do is, is pick up all the strays, bring them in, um, take care of them, home them. And then it's like, truly, it's like magic. People come here having no idea that that exists. And they're like, I just came to drive rally cars. I didn't intend on flying home with a dog. But um, it had like the first day we we were like officially open with the rescue. We adopted two out of our four dogs to people who had no idea we had a dog shelter oh and we were like yeah no this totally works so um mm. yeah we're really excited about it it's been, it's been really we have uh we have two dogs both rescues one um is actually a stray from houston yeah oh yeah totally and that's texas dog yeah we got a texas yeah <laughs> that's my next project i think is just going to build i'm just going to build a like a giant you know school bus that is rally cars and then dog kennels and so we'll just we'll just come up to the the Pacific Northwest rallies and bring like 40 dogs with us and rehome them all up there. So that's, that's actually a really solid idea. Our other yeah. rescue, she was from out of town as well. And the Humane Society here right. in Seattle, they cycle yeah. through dogs that right. are where the shelters have a hard time turning them over. Yeah. People yeah. here are awesome. Yeah. People here are okay. We don't, breed bands aren't really big. Like uh, our first uh, adoption uh, was uh, American Staffordshire, big, yeah. big girl. She's like, and, uh, so she came out of a puppy mill also. And so they bring them into Seattle because they're easier to adopt up here. People are into it. And we have another friend, Jake, who also adopted, I think from Dallas or Houston also yeah. another, another Texas dog. So we get a lot of them up here. So it's actually not a bad idea. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that really is the move for us is like just finding ways to, to be able to bring in more dogs. The biggest thing for us was just like we got a hard, hard regroup and sort of reset on everything during COVID for, the, for, for both businesses. Yeah. Um, and again, sort of building up this membership base and, and getting that going is, is taking a lot of energy. And as soon as we're able to get that fired up, then oh, we're slinking away. Thanks for coming, Rita. <laughs> it's lovely to see you. Well, if, you like decide, 
if you do decide to do that to you know have a trip up with some dogs yeah, uh, yeah. let us know ahead of time you yeah know, absolutely we have good reach we'll, we'll reach out to people let them know you yeah. know that there's gonna be a rally adoption coming up well, i'm in i'm in let's do it i gotta pick we'll pick maybe we'll like plan it way ahead and and uh We'll yep. come to one of the the big events. I, I guess I guess I did see recently there was a revised calendar that finished the championship up there. So yeah. Olympus, I'll just November. To, yeah, Olympus, November. Yeah, okay. November's gonna be tough. All of our uh, Coda events, everything at Circuit of the Americas, is all yeah. postponed to November, which means that the two biggest events, like you know, arguably two of the biggest motorsport events in North America, which is the MotoGP. Uh, Red Bull Grand Prix of the Americas and the, the Formula One Grand Prix are either back to back or two weeks apart right now. Oh my God. So that's going to be like just an absolute carnage. So oh. we'll see. Yeah. That poor track. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine if you worked there, if your job was to turn over the venue for the two events? Well, not only that, but like a lot of businesses, you know, I mean, ours, ours included, like it's, it's you know we we had some folks who had to leave and go get you know other full-time jobs understandably right. most of our staff have have been fortunate enough to either have been able to like stay on doing some you know part-time work or have you know voluntarily sort of furloughed themselves on unemployment or you know have have started coming back but like coda had to let go i think 30 or might even be 50 percent of their staff so they, and they've already had a lot of turnover. So it's, yeah, anyway, that's another conversation. That is so tough. tough yeah. Well, we could talk to you forever. Thank you <laughs> so much for chatting yeah. with us today. Yeah, thank you. Tell people where they can find you online. Yeah, so rallyready.com. Uh, it's got basically everything on our, our driving school, the facility, um, at rallyready on Instagram or rallyreadydrivingschool on Facebook, or you can find me at Texas underscore Dave on Instagram, making just really high quality content of, mostly dogs <laughs> sounds it's like my instagram dogs, really. yeah totally yeah. thank it. you guys so much for having me it's so lovely to chat i know i think we're gonna have to do a round two i feel like there was a yeah lot sign me up hey okay. <laughs> thank you all right thanks thanks guys take care i hope you enjoyed this conversation with dave if you did we would love to know Take a screenshot and tag us on Instagram or Facebook at Mod Racing. Mod is spelled M-O-D-D because it's an acronym for Motorsports and Driver Development. And just so you know, this podcast is a key part of the driver development piece of our mission. We are always striving to bring you interviews that help you grow in your motorsports journey wherever you might be. Thank you for listening today. Catch you guys next time.